You're listening to The Comedy Cellar, live from the table, on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Comedy Cellar Show here on Sirius XM Channel 99. My name is Noam Dwarman. I'm the owner of the Comedy Cellar. We're here at the back table of the Comedy Cellar, uh, the famous back table. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Mr. Dan Natterman. I'd just like to briefly say that I do have a slight cold, and we'll see how that plays out. Okay. Sometimes that actually makes me a little more loose, so we'll see. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, comedian Gibran, Gibran Salim yep, is a Gibran New York City-based comedian... And has been featured on FX, MTV, and Stand Up NBC. We well, you know we got to work on these intros. Anyway. Yeah. Every <laughs> time it's the same conversation. Uh, because because has his podcast, everybody fails. Will be launching soon, as well as his <laughs> upcoming short film entitled Gibranistan. But you've got a yes. podcast too. Yeah, but I haven't started it yet. But you I'm are going my to... competitor. Yes, <laughs> I have a milkshake. Yes. <laughs> anyway, and but I tell you, there's too many podcasts. Okay, get, guest of honor. <laughs> David Froome, who is a more than just a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of a 2018 New York Times bestseller, Trumpocracy. He was also speechwriter to President Bush. And did you write the Axis of Evil speech? Is that correct? I was part of the team that accomplished it. Who, wow. who, 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 there was, there was, it's a State of the Union address. It's like a moon launch. I mean, you have, uh, you have a lot of people on it. Right, but, that, would... but that actual phrase, was that your... Uh, don't be humble. I, 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 I'm trying to be. Ac- I'm trying to be neither humble. I'm trying to be both humble and accurate. Yeah. Um, or, uh, but anyway, so it was part of. A, I worked on it. You worked let's, on let's it. Let's leave it back. Did he pronounce your name correctly? He said Froom, and he, I always thought it was from. He did not. But David I, was, from. I wasn't going to make an issue. I'm sorry. Why, why start but, up now? So, so I think it, he thought there was an umlaut over the hue. So it is from. So, so isn't it yeah. like like uh, it was life, liberty? And it wasn't always a pursuit of happiness. Like, like Jefferson had it different at first, and then I think Franklin said, no, how about pursuit of happiness? So you, so you, you, you might have, it might have been something a like process that. process like that, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> this, these are the things we want to settle here today. Okay. Immigration mm-hmm. and Trump. Whoa. And how <laughs> We're going to settle we, all well, of that. How long are we talking for? Now, you, you just wrote an article. Well, actually, we wanted to get into Christchurch. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's good. I, think, I don't think there's a way to... to discuss immigration without getting into that at some point. So, you wrote an article this this week called... It's, it's the cover story of the uh, Atlantic right now um, called How Much Immigration is, is Too Much. Um, and it try, this is one of America's um, most emotive issues. Mm-hmm. And the article tries to approach it in a way that is as, as reasonable, um, non-emotive as possible. Um, I, I, this is why I feel, I feel a little awkward being at the comedian's table because I'm like such a non-comedian. Like, a, how is the situation? I'm a situ- non-politics guy, yeah, how, so the situation it, is very balanced. No, we, we, we have serious talks here. We have serious talks here. But I, I'm trying to. I, I do have this often wrong faith that you can reason people through difficult things um, and arrive at conclusions that work for most people. Well, you obviously article, haven't met G. Brown, but go ahead. That's, that's, that's what the article tried to do. <laughs> So go ahead. Tell, give, us, give us the outline of your, your argument on that. So, Because uh, I think I agree with you. So the outline of the article is, um, I don't think Americans understand how much immigration the, rece- the country is receiving and how recently this has happened. Now, way to drive this point home 
is in the single decade of the 1990s, more immigrants, and I tend to bunch legal and illegal immigrants together because they're not as different from one another as, as it's often made out to be. Uh, in that one decade, the United States received more immigrants than in the 60 years from 1915 to 1975. Um, and, uh, and this is part of a vast global movement of people. From 1990 to 2015, 45 million people left the global south for the global north. And the numbers are going to increase in the 21st century. You said 45 million. 45 million people in... From in, the global south to the global north. In, in, in 30 years. In, 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 uh, in a quarter century. Of course. Um, and uh, the numbers are going to increase. Uh, and we have to make this work. And the key, in my view, to making it work is controlling the total numbers. And people talk about immigration as if you're for it or against it, as if it's either or. And the, the big argument of the piece is it's not either or. It's, it's, it's more or less. And who? Uh, you can't take everybody. You can't co exist with nobody. The United States is not reproducing itself. Without immigration, the population would fall. Um, but you have to have an answer that the country can sustain. Well, you brought up that we're not reproducing ourselves. Is that a possible solution? For Americans to have more children? Correct. Ameri uh, that, well, and, and, and policies put in place to encourage that. Is that, is that you, been tried anywhere? It, it's been tried. Um, the problem is modern governments find it different. The, the sorts of things you'd have to do to uh, get your birth rate up are so expensive that modern governments flinch from them. And just about everywhere in the developed world Affluent right now. people don't want a lot of kids. Well, the way they raise, they raise, they raise kids now, they want to put so much attention. I mean, I'm, I have, mm -hmm. when I was growing up, everybody had three kids. I have three kids. Oh, yes, I have three kids. But we're like, seven we're like aunts we're, and one uncle. We're like the only family yeah. that that all my kids' friends are either only children or one of two children, and that and that's a clear change from when I grew up in exactly the same town. My, I'm in the same town growing you up. Really, were in Ardsley, New York. Huh. So it's it's a pretty thing. Okay, so let me let me um, ask you about this. So, right, so that's the one thing that on on the left and the Democrats that they they will never tell you what policy, what limitations they will accept, which yeah. to, means, mean, to me means that they're fundamentally not serious. But let me ask you if this is correct. I think that no matter what would happen, if they were to shut down the border, we would realize immediately we need the labor. There is no two ways about it. We need the labor. And very quickly, Republican big business interests would be being pressured to bear to open up that spigot of immigration because we need the labor. So I think no matter what policies we try, in the end, reality is going to prevail and we will need immigrant labor. So to me, the biggest problem that we're facing, that's going to be a constant, is that we've rejected the melting pot ideal for the nation. Well, again, I'm not, I'm for immigration too. It's a question of how much. How many do you take? So uh, right now, the United States gets about 1.2 million legal immigrants a year, probably another 300 or 400,000 illegal immigrants. That, that, the, the illegal numbers are going to pick up as the econ if the economy stays as, as strong as, as it is right now. Uh, until 1990, the United States took 540,000 immigrants a year. So we just about doubled the numbers in 1990. And I can tell you historically why it doesn't really matter. But there's this attitude, well, we have it exactly right now. Exactly, and 540 would be too few. 2.4 million would be too many. And the one point—it's it, so random. It's so the outcome of a congressional process. And you say, how are you quite sure that all those years ago in 1990, 
Congress hit exactly the right number and no one's ever to look at it again. So, as you say, societies need to, people are going to move. It's a do, global world. Do you we, know have, we, have an, we have an aging population and we need the labor. We want this social safety net. We need the labor to sustain it. Do you know what the total uh, U.S. population is? About, 330 million? Yeah, about that. 330 million. So, so just but, to clarify, Gibran, you, you are... Wait, wait, uh, let me just, I just want to very quickly clarify, Gibran, you are first generation or you were born... Uh, overseas or in the United States? No, no, States? I was born in America, and my family immigrated here, both from Pakistan. Well, I'm a natural. I'm an immigrant. I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen. I was born in Canada, Canada. and I became a citizen in 2007. I'm first generation. My parents are also Canadian. Oh, really? That's correct. So, so I've been saying lately about this subject, I said, I don't see how a country that is not ready to allow Harvard to become more than 20% Asian is ready to embrace big numbers of immigrants. I, in other words, I don't see how we can have it both ways to say, you know, it's totally racist to look out at the people who want to come in and want to deny them or want to distinguish between them or choose where they come from. But as soon as they get over the border, the most important thing about them is where they came from, and we have to make sure that there's not too many here and not too many there. How can we hold together with that kind well, of that's thought? Actually, that's one of the questions that haunts me that led me to write the piece. The United States has already signed up for a gigantic immigration. There are about 40-plus million people foreign-born in this country. Um, about 11 million of those 40-plus million people are here illegally. Um, how are we going to make a success of that? How are we make a su- That's something we've already signed up to. And, um, and it's difficult. Um, it's not impossible. The United States has done things like this before. And so my, the thing that haunts me is how do we make a success? And uh, controlling numbers makes it easier to make Americans. Let me give you a, 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 something I worry about a lot. Um, so I, I, most Americans say, oh, there's this total difference between legal and illegal immigrants. Completely separate things. That's not true. Um, many illegal immigrants began legal. They came on a visa and they arrived legally and they then overstayed it. Many legal people um, began illegally. They came here illegally, and they then married an American and acquired legal status. These are blurry categories, and it's very common to have households in which some members have legal status and some members don't. So I, I just find, you know, from a, I, I am a lawyer by training, but as a as I think about this as a social matter, I group them all together, and making a success of this is going to be very hard. Now, here's here's the uh, problem in Islam. So. The biggest decade for illegal immigration was the 1990s. Uh, the 2010s are shaping up to be as an, another big decade. But those people came in the 1990s. They were in their 20s then, probably in their 40s and 50s now. Uh, about two-thirds of them have been here for more than a decade. They're not going back where they came from. What happens when they turn 65? What, what do they do for a pension? What do they do for health care? Um, are we going to say that you, at that point someone's lived in the country for 20, 25, 30 years? It's the only home you know. You, you don't have legal status, but you're not in the, you don't, um, you're not in the system. So if you get sick, no, we're going to have to do something about that. But if we're going to make a success of that, you can't say, all right, well, that means that anybody who shows up here gets in the Medicare program because we have to get those 11 million people, find some way before they retire to get them into it. Uh, that means that the person who steps off the airplane and overstays a visa, they get into Medicare as a bonus prize. That can't be right. So you need a total system of enforcement. You need a total management of numbers. And then you have to take the um, people who arrived here, um, including those who have been here a long time, and you have to make Americans out of them. I, I agree with you. It, and I, I think that intersectionality is not going to uh, – is the enemy of all this. 
I, you I, have a big movement in this country that says, what, what do you mean an American? Are you a tall American? Are you a short American? Are you a beigeish American or a brownish American? Um, and that the thi- and what is happening, of course, is the, the hyphen, which is supposed to be a, a tool, a, an expression of victimhood, is actually a tool of power. And as people perceive that the, ty- that the ty- hyphen is a tool of power, people who don't have a hyphen want one because you have to keep up in this hyphen arms race. Hyphen so, is in the specification of what type of person. Exactly. Yeah, you're Canadian American. <laughs> so, so you, and I, you notice this. I mean, the Trump people. There's this effort to make Trump voters a, a, a victim group, to def, uh, um, or cons, to define cons, what they're trying to say is white people without a strong ethnic identity. Um, but they have all the you know hardworking Americans, uh, you know um, Trump voters, conservatives, and what they're, they're trying to do is claim the power of the hyphen for themselves. And and the end, I end the piece by quoting um, this passionate speech by Teddy Roosevelt during the First World War. And Teddy Roosevelt coined the phrase "hyphenated American," and he was against it. And he's, that's often seen as an example of his exclusive attitude. But this, he didn't have an exclusive attitude. He had this extraordinary speech about how. Um, you know, the Roosevelts who've been in the country since the 17th century said, the immigrants of today, their children are going to marry my children. We have to be one nation. Well, what do you think about Roosevelt's attitude toward hyphenated Americans? Are you similarly uh, opposed to hyphenated Americans? I think, we, I think it's a, a fact that people have these feelings, and it's not realistic to expect them to give up the feelings immediately. Um, but I think we have to encourage people to find a common American identity. And I think mm-hmm. what, there's one other thing, and I think this is a, maybe a sensitive subject, and I'll try to speak about it sensitively. We like sensitive subjects here. I think what has happened is that the black American experience is a particularly unique one. And a lot of other groups look at that experience and say, I want to model my story on theirs. But one of the things that makes America America is that this story is unique. Um, and so that uh, there are... The, 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 this is a place where the hyphen really is appropriate because of the distinctive experience. Uh, but that's somebody's unique story, and it doesn't. And you can't just now do that for 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 everybody. I think I feel like that's a specific cultural shift that's happened in an X amount of time, and that the correlation between social status and being perceived as a victim will also adjust with time. You know what I mean? Like, people get like that hyphenation it. now means social status, at least within the world of social media and stuff. But I, I can't predict it, but I feel like that's not here to stay. I hope not. Now, now if, we have, if we have 40 million immigrants, what, what percentage of them are, they, are Latin American? Um, I don't have that at the top of my head, but uh, Mexican Americans are the biggest at this point immigrant group. Is it the most overwhelming single nationality immigration we've ever had? Okay, we've never, so we've had, that's a very interesting, so we all remember, you know, the opening scenes of The Godfather. Um, So the United States had a huge immigration from 1880 to 1914. In some ways, even bigger than the immigration of today. But the difference then was that immigration happened at a time when Americans were having lots of children, native-born Americans were having lots of children of their own. So even though relative to the size of the country, the immigration in the 1890s was bigger than it is today, its impact on the country was smaller. Uh, in fact, the proportion of Americans who were born outside the United States was smaller in 1910 than it was in 1890, despite the huge immigration, because the Americans who were here already were also having lots of children. Um, but in those days, that immigration came from many, many different places. And so one of the things that accelerated the learning of English was, so you came off the boat from Sicily, um, and you wanted to talk to the person in the next block. They did not speak 
never mind Italian, because, the, they, because Italian in those they didn't speak Sicilian. They didn't, you know, and even if you were from Sicily and Calabria, you had a lot of troubles. Um, they might be from Greece. They might be from Poland. They might be from Lithuania. Um, they might be, you know, Irish. Speak Yiddish, whatever. Yeah. Speak Yiddish. Right. Uh, so uh, whatever happened, the, the kids absolutely had to learn English because that was the only available language. What we are seeing is, you know, we've got pretty good English language acquisition by the present day generation of immigrants. But what, what, what is, seems to be happening is they're learning some English, but not a lot. Um, and so you have uh, really um, worrying scholastic achievement. They're getting... You're talking about the, the Hispanic community. Immigrants generally, but especially with Hispanics, because they're they're living in a world in which there's so many people who speak the same language. Mm. The kids go to school, they watch TV, they listen to music, they learn enough English to function, but they don't learn enough English to function at the very highest levels of opportunity. So, so what would be wrong if we all, and we're reasonable people here, uh, if we all kind of agree that we need, we need the immigrants... But we need to be one nation. We need them to be uh, to assimilate. Um, then we have to to construct an immigration policy, which is likely to succeed. And wouldn't that mean taking more from a, a wider variety of places? Well, this is beginning to happen. I mean, one of the things that is um, one of the things you would want is to say, I mean, right now, about seventy percent of the people come here um, legally come because they are relatives of somebody already here. Uh, that, um, not, and not just, you know, husbands and wives sponsoring chain, chain each other. Chain migration, Trump yeah, calls it. Yeah. Uh, family reunification. Yeah. Um, that, uh, and this happens, in fact, so what will happen is uh, you come because your cousin's here, and your cousin's here because her cousin's here, and, it all, and this goes back now. And so the immigrants, in a way, are selecting themselves. So uh, along with taking smaller overall numbers, what I'm advocating is shifting the balance to make it have less family reunification, and uh, uh, more people who are here because of high educational qualifications. President Trump calls it merit. There's nothing meritorious about this. You're not a better person. It's just easier for you to function in a highly developed economy. And what will, as a practical matter, what that will mean is you'll get more people from South Asia and West Africa, and probably fewer people from Latin America and the Philippines. Um, and not because South Asians and West Africans are necessarily better educated, because if you're well-educated in Latin America, you're not going to come to the United States. The, the, the social structure of Latin America is such, if you're an educated person, there's some pretty good opportunities for you um, in, yeah. uh, in in your place of origin. It's it's if you're poor that things are, are bad. Um, whereas what happens, especially in, in, in West Africa and South Asia, is uh, especially if you belong to um, traditionally disfavored groups, if you're a Muslim from India, if you're a woman from Pakistan, um, that you're going to find there's a real that the people who have educational attainment say, I, I can't make it here. The ceiling is higher here. Well, yeah. well what precipitated yeah. your family, uh, Gibran, to to move from Pakistan? Uh, education and stability that came along with that. My dad immigrated here. He had a Fulbright scholarship, uh, and he he moved to America, and eventually he got a. A PhD in engineering, went back to Pakistan to look for a wife, uh, met my mom, uh, and then came back with her and had kids. So, so that's good. So, so and, and there's and that's very common. There's so many like South Asians that are per coming to America because they know other people also to pursue academia. Because so, I feel, and I wait, could be wrong, the I, ceiling I, might be higher here. I might have asked you this before, but yeah. just generally, 
How misty do you get when you hear stories about the founding fathers or Thomas Jefferson, George Washington? Do you feel that those are your, that's your history? Or do you feel that's, that I'm, I'm here, but that's their history? I feel like there's a common duality that's constantly going through me on a subconscious level, which is, yeah, I'm American. I was born in America. I'm, I'm a full-blooded American in the sense that I was born in America, but also that's also my other home is Pakistan. I have so many family there. I'm culturally attached to it. This so is there's what a worries common me. divide. Yeah. So, is asking- so, so let me say, so my father came over to eight years old. Yeah. And by eight and a half... He was a Yankee, like Tom, you know, yeah. the, the, but Thomas. Always- Jeff- the, the whole, no, but this was very binding for a nation of immigrants that were they left the past behind. Okay. Yeah, but, but so, here, here, let, um, I, I'm Jewish. I don't know if you are, but if you are, can't you tell um, <laughs> that what has happened? A lot of the, an astonishing number of the people who've written about immigration have been Jews, and Jews have tended to assume that the Jewish experience is normal, and that of the other 98 percent of humanity is aberrant. Um, and so, so, what I'm saying is unique to Jews. You think not? It's, it's similar to Italians and Irish. And- I, I think that the reaction of the revulsion of Jews to the place they came from, and the falling in love with the place that the Jewish immigration experience was a singularly uncomplicated one. That's interesting. Um, back there, there is nothing. Uh, you know, um, I am lucky enough that some of my relatives lived into their 90s. So I learned something because the ones who died in their 70s and where I that to get any anything out of them, and my, half my ham, family is pre-Holocaust and half is, is post. But I will tell you, just so as a less romantic, as a Canadian, Canadian just how it's inevitable. I mean, what two countries are sim- more similar than Canada and the United States? And yet every Fourth of July, my kids troll me and say, <laughs> "So how do you feel about this holiday?" And I get, and they say, they because they know what I think. Is, the Royal Navy wasn't free; it had to be paid for. <laughs> <laughs> No, T was a good thing to tax. I think he's being very optimistic. Wait, but no, no I is... think you're overstating the case with regard to immigrants. First of all, m- most Americans don't get misty-eyed over the founding fathers, unfortunately. Because I there's think other historical sh- associations uh, around the time. That well, I, black Americans nice certainly would be, would be no, no, justified no, but, no, but, in lack of... I agree with Mr. Frum here that, that black Americans were, have always been the one subgroup of Americans that we understand and respect can only but have ambivalent feelings about the United States of America. Because yeah. they are Americans more than most Americans. They were, they they've the always oldest. been here yeah. and they have that history. But that's quite different from people choosing to come here yeah. and bringing in that feeling along with them. And I think that's Nude. Now, maybe that'll all come out in the watch in a few generations. I think that's just human human empathy. You don't have to have experienced another group's trauma to understand that that wasn't good. Like, the Holocaust was bad. I wasn't there. No, but But I would... I'm saying, I I adopted the Founding Fathers as my Founding Fathers, and their shame is my shame, in a sense, too. Like, uh, they're me, and we did this to black Americans. And I feel that we did it, even though I know... Uh, you know, my father wasn't even born here. Yeah. But Jabron was talking about a duality that runs through him. What yeah. what Caucasian group has more duality? And I hate to say because this is Noam's latest obsession, dual loyalty. And I'm not using the my, term dual no, loyalty. That's Ilhan Omar's latest obsession. But what, 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 what white American group has more duality than the Jews? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, let's, let's, uh, so here we are in New York. 
uh, site of the bloodiest riots in American history in 1863, when Irish, when at the same time as the Battle of Gettysburg was being waged to save the Union, Irish Americans who uh, felt completely alienated from the United States, um, who uh, op opposed the Union war effort, rose up in thousands, and I think dozens, maybe hundreds of people were killed. Um, uh, m many Americans have had this experience during the First World War. But amongst when, white Americans. During the First World War, when German Americans were told you can't speak your language anymore and your schools are going to be closed down. Um, the, the make, the, one of the things, and this is where, again, the Jewish experience is happening. The making of America was a hard, rough, often brutal. It's got a lot of... I mean, I always say, say that the reason we study history is, is you start off in elementary school, thinking, you know, the United States, the hope of mankind, the greatest democracy in the world. And then you'll learn a little bit more. And you'll learn a little bit more, and it gets more and more and more complicated. What I always say to... But it's still true. Is the, the trick is you, ha you can't stop there. You have to keep going until you come out the other side of the funhouse ride and say, now I know all the dark passages. And there are, the passages are really dark and and the whole concept of white Americans anyway is such you know such a new idea um, no one in 1910 in the south in 1910 there were white Americans but in New York there weren't white Americans they there were just a series of groups who were, were mostly from Europe and who had you know violent hate you know often very violent hatred um, you know St. Patrick's Day which we just commemorated Orange Day those did they didn't think that the the south and the Protestant and Catholic Irish that were all white people together um, uh, and to make America, I, I, I guess, and this is one of the things I come at for, as a Canadian and as a student of history, uh, and this informs, and because one of the questions people ask me is, how can you be so anti, you know, so you're unusually immigration skeptical, and yet you're this fierce anti-Trump person. So the, the, the foundation of all of my thinking about politics is that, country, that democracies are more fragile than they think they are. We, and that we have to be protective and respectful fragility of democracy and not do not test it and that's one of the reasons why you know during the economic crisis I was in favor of although I'm pretty conservative Republican most of the time but in an economic crisis so you flood the country with money do not test what will happen if you have a serious depression and not, bail out the auto industry right you were for that too I was for the car industry the car industry yeah the auto industry yeah, yeah. yeah. oh so I thought you said oil no, no not no, the, uh, yeah uh, those guys mm, uh, <laughs> yeah I, I agreed with that too but do not and I kind of think what we're often doing is just testing how much pressure we can put on the country before something breaks. And I said, I said, while it would be interesting to know the answer, I'd rather not know because the only way that you know the answer is when you hear crack. Mm. Uh, David, um, can I call you David? Yeah, uh, too late. I guess, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, that's... Anyway, um, Canada, you're from there. Yeah. Um, Canada doesn't strike me, and I may be wrong... As a patriotic country, it's certainly not as patriotic as the United States. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, uh, with, with our, with all, you know, no one was talking about the founding fathers and the adoration of misty-eyed. Do Canadians get misty-eyed thinking about whoever founded? Can I don't know who those people would yeah. be. No, it's not the same. But I just want to—I'll give you a theory of mine, which is I think American patriotism reflects a lot of the artificiality. Uh, let me put it this way: You go to Japan, like the most self-conscious country in the world, they don't wave a lot of flags. The reason you see flags everywhere in the United States, you know when, when Americans started flying flags, not over government buildings, but over private houses, after the firing on Fort Sumter. 
um, that, that Adam Goodhart in his fantastic book, 1861, describes is that the, the habit, the American custom of raising flags over private homes, very unusual in the developed world, was a response to the worst civil conflict in any of the developed countries. Um, and so Americans do this, the cult of this was because it's so hard to put this country together and to find heroes who on either side of the racial divide, on either side of the South-North divide, on either side of the class divide. Um, and the United States had the most incredibly violent labor relations of any developed country. Um, again, like strikes in which dozens or even hundreds of people were killed. Um, to put all of this together into one country, that took a very self-conscious effort. And the making of these, of these founding fathers who are very fallible people into these demigods, that's part of the project of making America. Right, but so you understand, but that's kind of my point. That's what I'm worried about is that it may not, it may not reflect truth, uh, metaphysical truth, but it's kind of these necessary myths that we need to yes. hold together a country that has no DNA. Mm -hmm. But neither does Canada, and yeah. Canada's holding together without. Well, I think Canada's so. mostly all white people, isn't it? Like no, all Canada, Canada, Canada's um, more multi-ethnic than you might think. But, but the, the thing about the, the oh, Canada's coming apart too. By the way, the, the French Canada, and the Canadian Canada tribes has constant national unity problems. Yeah. Um, and Canada is a different approach. So the, the United States says we're going to hold together by all finding some common myths and all believing them. And the Canadian approach is we're going to hold together by identifying all the places, all the cracks in the sidewalk, and nobody go near them. And so the, the, it generally, the people always you know say Canada is everyone's so polite. Yeah, but we have a whole list of things we don't talk about because people mm -hmm. find it upsetting. And so Americans will say, we'll talk about them and we'll, you know, we'll be one people. But not only French and English, but East versus West, um, Aboriginal versus, um, you know, uh, you know post-colonial settlement, all of those things, those are real. Uh, they believe that. Uh, also, and, uh, isn't, it, isn't it fair to say, you know, we shouldn't bash ourselves over the head about our past. I mean, slavery, of course, was something we inherited. When we came into, as a nation in 1789, whatever it was, we didn't decide to have slaves. Slavery existed, mm -hmm. so it, it's 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 there. It's also and the it, realization of growth, right? But must, and, if, and if you chart American history, it's a and 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 how far we've come socially and technologically and in every in every aspect of how we've accomplished as a people, it's a tremendously it's a, it's an amazing, inspiring story that I don't know any other people since 1789 could compare <laughs> to. And one of the, and if you were to take that story out of world history, mm -hmm. what would the other countries look like? I, so, mean, I, I agree with all of that. Yeah. There are many points along the way where things could have gone wrong. And this also is a point along the way where things could go wrong. So it's, uh, um, and what, that one of the things you need to draw inspiration from is, is just not to take things so for granted. Um, not to think, okay, um, we're safe, it's done, the story's over. Uh, nothing big can go wrong from here on. Uh, to understand uh, history is now. We're making history right now. So let me make one other point, and then can I use that to launch into the, 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 the Jewish thing? What about the Christ Church? Uh, well, uh, so just in, in your article, you had written that 33 out of 85 Nobel Prize winners in a certain time period were immigrants. Yes. And I said, wow, you know, that's yeah, fantastic. Wow. So I went to look it up. And what I found was... If, if we're going to look at the immigrants who are winning the Nobel Prizes, are we allowed to also notice that it's overwhelmingly from one culture and 
basically zero from another culture, or or do we just take the Nobel thing off the table? Well, if this if, if this is if we're going to say, look, this is one of the benefits, well then yeah, but mm-hmm. kind of how are we going to get that benefit if we ignore? Okay, well, without going down too much of a byway on this, so. Um, Jews have contributed disproportionately to scientific advancement in the United States, at least until very recently. Why? Um, and, and the answer to that is, well, the first country in the world to organize scientific research in a systematic way was Germany. Um, and uh, in, in Germany, Jews were a disproportionate number of um, the highly educated people. And so, but the, and, uh, the organization, the scientific enterprise as we know it, England or Great Britain had a very important role, but the, the real organization, large-scale, big science, or at least big for its day, really starts in Germany. And then the Germans decide, right, we're going to take, you know, a third of our scientific, of, of the people who do the science, um, and drive them in, into exile, and then take another third who are their friends or married to them or, you know, like them or are horrified by this, expo- and drive them into exile, and then take the last third and systematically dumb them down or get them killed and get them bombed and destroy the material bases. And we are going to remove Germany as a fact from world science, which one of the things, if you look at that list, you'll discover how many before 33 of the Nobelists are from Germany. Yeah. I don't think there's one after 1933. Yeah, I, I started at 2000 on this list because I think that's... Okay. The, yeah. uh, and so, the, um, so what you have is this, um, the, the transplant of the culture of large-scale organized science from Germany into the United States. And then it's both people who did it back in Germany and their students and the next generation. I think what you're seeing is uh, that this is something very teachable. Um, and if you look at the list of names, you see more and more Indian names or South Asian names, I should say. Um, uh, and I, I think that will, that is going to proliferate. I mean, not all people are going to be equally interested in all things. Um, well, you also said that the most educated classes don't come from Latin America. Right. In Latin America, the educated people stay at home because they have you know, if you are an upper middle class Mexican, um, you can have a pretty good life in, in Mexico. It's, it's, uh, it's just tough if you're in the bottom 20% of the country. Uh, so what do you want to say about the, the Christchurch? I'll get to the Jew thing. What, what do you want to ask? Well, uh, first of all, I want to have a general discussion about it because it's sort of dominating the news. Well, here's, here's my questions. And, I, and I, I did a lot of research to try to find... In a sense that, you know, you say, do eggs, do eggs cause uh, heart disease? And you, you, that you look at that in an empirical way, and you, and you hopefully have it double-blind if you can, because you know how much confirmation bias can, can affect things. Do we, are we sure, how sure are we that Donald Trump is uh, causing a rise in white nationalism? Oh, I don't think he's the cause. I think he's the symptom. You think he's the symptom? So, look, I think what, is, what has been happening... Um, is white nationalism, and by the way, it's really weird to call it nationalism when it actually is the most global ideological movement, as, as global as jihadism. So it's, it's you know, white racial chauvinism. Um, uh, and not everybody in this movement, by the way, is actually, you know, going to be agreed by, like, the question of what makes you white. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people who are ideologists, and it's like jihadism. There's a spectrum that there are people who are doing intellectual theoretical work that is, I mean, just as there are, for, you can see this in the Islamic world, so there are people who are conservative Muslim clerics, uh, very much in the tradition, um, wouldn't hurt a fly, uh, and there are elements in their work that people more radical than themselves can draw on to build a more militant ideological structure, even though they themselves wouldn't hurt a fly, 
And then there are people who then say, well, this creates a justification for violence, but I wouldn't do it myself. And then there are the people who goad and provoke and tease. And then there are the people who set up the online communities where disaffected, sexless young men get radicalized. And then there are the people who actually go out and take from all of this collagen and do the murders. Well, as a disaffected, sexless uh, young man, do you have any? No, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Trump is the cause of, 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 just to generalize the term, white nationalism. But I think his lack of a statement is not helping it. It's all—it's almost a lot of his rhetoric, I, I, I feel like people will extract what they want from it. And people who are already having this white nationalist ideology, they see Trump's lack of, of having any aggressive he, he statement denouncing it. it. He's activating yeah. okay, but he's, symptoms he's, that already exist. He's not yeah. responding to it like a pro... He's not... What would normally... Have, my God, this is a giant domestic and international security problem. And we are... Uh, in the United States, it is a source of major domestic terrorism. These groups are now intersecting and interacting. This, this murderer in New Zealand um, had traveled all over the world, had met with like-minded people. They're not nationalists. They're not paid. They have no loyalty to any national state. Um, you know that, that's one of the reasons why the Trump people, uh, Trump people, again, they're not violent at all, of course, but they can work so easily with the Russians because they see in light-skinned Russians people with whom they have something in common much more than they have with. Americans with the skin of a different hue because the, the passport no longer matters. Um, but we have this right, it's a proper international terrorist movement with a set of ideas. And what would normally happen is um, the domestic security apparatus of the United States would be interested. And when you had a killing as spectacular and horrifying as the New Zealand murder, the president would get involved and say, okay, let's analyze this. What are we going to do? What's our policy? Um, and but we have Je to believe they are, right? No, we, we know they're not because we know that because the president feels. You say, I mean, Donald Trump feels implicated. Right, but it. doesn't the FBI follow these things uh, as a matter of regular course? They, 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 they're without the president's involvement. Um, there's a famous, back in 2009, uh, the Department of Homeland Security released a, an important paper warning of the rise of this kind of ideology. Um, and pointing out that one of the things that was, that was giving it rocket fuel, um, it, it, the thing was actually written before the onset of the Great Recession, was demobilized uh, embittered veterans from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. One of the things that was distinctive about those wars is, um, well, obviously the, a lot of people were killed, but because of the advances in medicine, many people came back with terrible people who had been killed in any previous conflict. They survived, but with physical or psychic wounds. And uh, that Homeland Security worried that these people could become uh, the material out of which... And this provoked a huge reaction from conservative America. Are you calling conservatives racists and murderers? And, and so it was shut down. And to an amazing extent, if you look at how focused we have been on jihadi violence, and I'm not saying too much, uh, but and that the structures aren't there, even from beginning to think about it. And the, and the President of the United States feels every time, as he said in a tweet, I don't know if we're going to broadcast this on the same day, on the day that you and I are talking, we are, are talking, the President said, you know, I'm tired of people blaming, he's hearing it in his head because he knows everyone's like looking at him, dial M for murder. Um, <laughs> and he feels accused. And yeah. and that means, and there's some justice to that, but would, uh, not that much, some, but that means the government of the United States is paralyzed. And we need to say, some, you know, Somebody ought to be looking at these chat rooms. At the, let's retrace the steps by which people 
turn their disaffection into murder. Now with the with so, the with the jihadis and especially after 9/11, people were saying we should look at the root cause. Some some people were saying let's look at the root causes. Others were saying f the root causes. We don't want to know what the root causes are. This is madness. And to, to look at the root causes would be to, in some way, justify it. Now, we see the same conversation after Christchurch. Should we look at this man's manifesto? Is it worth investigating why he did what he did? Or should we dismiss him as a lunatic that deserves no, no analysis? No. Well, I, think, I think one of the things that is, and again, you don't want to say anything good comes out of a terrible crime like this. But one of the things that is useful about studying jihadism and white nationalism together and seeing their similarities is when people began saying after 9-11 we need to look at the root causes they said that means we need to look at the things that people say are their grievances Israel Kashmir whatever it is and we need to solve the problem in Kashmir and people like me and I think people like me said then and what you can say yeah we need to look at the root causes but the root causes of this crime are not Kashmir and Israel for the jihadis or immigration into New Zealand. That's the raw The root cause is we have young men who are disaffected, sexless, um, isolated. What do we do about the sexlessness? Um, <laughs> what do we do about the sexlessness? Robots. But uh, what we need to say, that the more we understand the similarities between jihadi and white nationalist violence, yeah. the, the more We're we can so say... So similar. The more we can focus on the right... And I, I quote in my book, Hypocrisy, a woman who was an expert. She was South Asian. She was ex- expert on... Um, especially in you know in the Kashmir context, and ex- uh, on the radicalization of young men, and she said, "I can see this happening with young white men in America. It's the same process." And so, by focusing on the two together, we can see what are the true root causes, which are the, um, uh, the combination of the place of young men, the availability of the media, um, and and there uh, and the availability of these social media and this. The, Isolation, radicalized messages, and the easy availability of instruments of violence. This is this is what. Do you think that there is no? I don't want to use the word legitimate, but when he this man said that he sees white European peoples becoming a minority in traditionally European countries, you don't believe that that's anything to do with his real motivation? No, it isn't that. It's that. Um, uh, Look, I, I think there are a lot of human rights abuses that are occurring in Kashmir um, by the Indian forces against the predominantly Muslim people of Kashmir. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't think it would be a, a very agreeable thing to be a young Palestinian under Israeli military rule. Um, and I'm sure, and you know, uh, you know, and as I said, I'm, I'm I'm someone who's worried about the long-term effects of immigration in too big numbers, but. Uh, the question of how you turn those political concerns into justification for your individual mass murder of in a, of, of civilians, um, I, I think I find it helpful to not to not think about that as a uh, that the path I want, I think it's most useful to follow to prevent crimes like this is not the political path, but the psychological, the sociological, and the sexual. Uh, can I can I tell you what I what I worry about with this? Um, with uh, you know radical, radical Islamic terror, I think there were seventy thousand people killed by radical Islamic terrorists last year in the world. You know, mostly in, in Muslim countries. But we and we 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 devote hundreds of billions of dollars every year to keep it to a minimum. And of course, they have territories and armies and weapons or whatever it is. So uh, in my mind, it, are, are we comparing 
kind of like smallpox. The people who die from smallpox to the people who die from the complications of the common cold and then pretending that the cold is just a serious problem, forgetting the fact that, yeah, but we have a whole tremendous infrastructure that, that vaccinates us against smallpox and we get 100% of the common colds. Yeah. And then the fatality numbers are the same. We say, oh, look, the common cold is just like smallpox. Well, no, it's not because if we got, if we devoted the same attention to jihadi terrorism that we're devoting right now to white national terrorism, we might have tens of thousands of deaths. I think the way I would think is if you see um, a virus in a lab um, and, and say, this virus is very damaging to a well-fed person with who's properly housed and it's lethal to a poor person. Um, we will not be surprised that the same virus can have very different effects of lethality on different kinds of populations. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that is different about white nationalism is it predominantly occurs in a, in a context of societies with highly effective police systems. I remember um, being at a, uh, visiting with some British police in, in Manchester is about half a decade ago. And I sat with them in their control center and watched, you know those video cameras you see in every British town? So I'm, they, I'm in a room where they've got this giant TV screen that they can break. It can either be, like, can either show you one image or they can break it and it can show you 500 images. And, and, and what we, they're, they're following, they've got a guy who's like, looks, they don't like, and they're following him down the street. And then they, they break away and they, and they can, you know, they, they have huge files. That, I mean, that the level of surveillance that is that a British or Australian or French or German or American state can deploy when it wants to versus, you know, what a Pakistan can do. Mm -hmm. um, these are very sophisticated states. Um, and they have armies. So a lot of the, the reason that the jihadi violence has been so lethal is it's occurred in states that, you know, are barely states at all. I mean, Iraq and Syria. And then, uh, but the fact that, it, that this thing can be so much worse, it's bad. Um, and it's seems to be growing and in this country there's a problem which is you don't need while this, the defense is much more robust here it's also true that here it is so easy to get lethal instruments that's right that uh, you, you don't need very many of these guys to do things like what happened to the synagogue in Pittsburgh what happened to um, uh, the mosque in, in New Zealand so, and, and you know that, that's what I when I, when I see a, a shooting of the you know, some white nationalists shoots up a place, I imagine, well, what's the iceberg underneath? And that iceberg, in my mind, I could be totally wrong, seems to be not even comparable in size to the iceberg I imagine under a shooting, uh, under when somebody, uh, you know, takes a car into the Halloween, a truck into the Halloween day parade. And I say, oh shit, what is, what, what are we preventing here? So I just, I'm, I'm, I think they're both serious problems. And I f I'm afraid that when we offset them as like two sides of a coin, that's not actually the way we should be well, looking at it. They're not two sides of a coin. They're two separate problems. Well, let me, let me. And, so, and they what, need to be on their merits reacted to. Um, when you have some, when you have murders that look kind of the same, and the murderer, you say to the murderer, why did you do it? And the murderer gives his reasons. That's not worthless information. But it's not the whole of the story, uh, because at, uh, at some level there's something aberrant about a person who commits this crime in the first place. And they may not know themselves all that well. Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, he's a little—he was—he 
you know, he had a very idiosyncratic set of political beliefs. But I think from, I see a lot of points of similarity. And I think one of the things that is really, what is very interesting about um, the mosque bomber is that he, uh, mosque killer, is that he chose not to die. Uh, because he wants to be an on, and he said in his manifesto, um, called that, in his, that he wants to be an ongoing witness to the suffering of the, that he inflicted. Jesus. Gibran, I have a feeling Gibran had something to say. I mean, I had various viewpoints throughout, but I think, yeah, the, they're all extremists, no matter whether they're like Islamic jihadists or this white nationalist guy, for whatever reason, whatever term to use best for him. And I think there's so many people that are susceptible to to be influenced in any way. It's almost like a mental health vulnerability. Well, but David, they're, well, they're all yeah. extremists and they're all prone to. But, but to we've me, talked that, about it on this show. I'm sorry about yeah. you know, and we've had an expert one time who actually said that they thought that uh, an Islamic terrorist was not mentally ill, but like probably was. And they had a whole theory of psychology as to why that was. And that matters. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. But I, I feel like it, it might be, not be a classifiable mental, classifiable mental health disorder, but I think there's a certain personality subset. It's almost like a latent trait. Like, you may be prone to schizophrenia. That doesn't mean you're going to become schizophrenia. So there's certain things that, that activate that. And I think there's a subset of personalities that are more responsive but, to so certain let, influences. Let me ask you this. David has like, made... Like, I look, think that the guy in New Zealand is the of the same mindset of... Osama bin Laden, or let, let, one of do we his know people. by the way that this man was sexless? Or are you just making a supposition, David? Um, he's uh, tw- twenty-eight years old, um, not married, not in a long-term relationship. He seems to have been on the move all around <laughs> the like planet. This. I'm going to do you one yeah, better. I'm like forty-nine. <laughs> 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 I'll say I'll do you one better. I'm forty-nine, unmarried, not in a long-term relationship. <laughs> I do have sex on occasion. I also turn down more sex than you might uh, surmise. So, so um, believe it or not, can I ask a he's question? also from Australia. But, uh, but I know what it is like to be completely sexless. I, 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 in college, had that problem, and it is nothing to 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 laugh at. I promise you that. You no, know, you know what? And I shouldn't be, in a way, um, that points us in the wrong direction. So maybe loveless, uh, maybe uh, is the more important thing. That that like how? Well, look, four men around the table. Woman yeah. who is silent, who is doing it. Well, uh, she's our producer. She does talk. <laughs> but but four and of us around the table. So we, we know what we are like. And we know how, especially when we're teenagers, how casually brutal we can be to one another. And then that we have the spaces that we have taken from our childhood of the love of our parents and maybe a sibling. Um, and that sort of introduces us to human empathy and compassion. Um, and then what I, as we become older teenagers, the sex drive pulls us in directions where we have to learn in a school for caring for other people. And and one of the things I think that happens when, either because of somebody's place in the, this, you know, economic failure or um, the Muhammadadas of the world, I mean, they're kind of their cultural isolation, they're cut, they live apart from women, um, is that they, they don't go through that school of learning to see another's pain as something that they need to internalize. One of the things that people often say about mass murderers is that they, when you go through, and not the political ones, but like the regular American mass shooter, that it, you start, you track their life, and it begins with cruelty to animals. Um, but there's the psychopathic triad, right? There's the lack of empathy. But the psychopathic triad, you can, 
well, point out in probably every psychopath and serial killer. Well, and start, mass, You right, might want to give us a brief rundown on what the psychopathic triad is because I don't know. Cruelty and, to animals, bedwetting, and setting things on fire. Is two out of three a, a, a pass? or? Is <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, so let me, let me add this. But that's important. I think it's also important that when white men are mass murderers, they're considered mentally ill. But when somebody of color does it, they're sort of painted. It's not, it's not about white a, men and people of color. It's, it's a, it was the, the theory is based on the fact of a, a someone who was raised within an ideology of orthodoxy, whatever that is, as opposed to someone who... Yeah. Look, I think we see with, with mass murderers, there are people who are obviously more functional and less functional. I mean that um, you know. I think Muhammad Ada's dead long enough that I can use his name. So Muhammad Ada is obviously a highly functional person. You know, I think he went to engineering school. Um, you know, he didn't. Ha he had no arrest record of any kind. He had never committed any kind of. It had no contact with the law before. Um, and um, so, I mean, if you'd met him six months before the 9/11 atrocity, you might find him an unpleasant person. I would guess, but you would not say, "Whoa, there's something askew." Um, my guess is that with you would see something. You would meet him and say, "Okay, there's there's a there's something really weird." About yeah. Listen, if, if when I meet a, a Hasidic Jew who was born Hasidic, and, yeah. and I say, "Oh, he's you know Hasidic Jew, whatever." When I meet a 30 year old who all of a sudden becomes Hasidic, yeah. Nine times out, I'm telling like you know cuckoo, like yeah. something. Yeah. Th that's just the right. difference. And uh, similarly, uh, a 13 year old Palestinian boy who is is a suicide bomber. He's probably not mentally ill. He's just a product of how he's been yeah. raised. Yeah. Someone who leads a normal life and then all of a sudden turns into a suicide bomber. That's, and that's like... However, mental illness doesn't always show up at 13. No, I'm just For saying... For example, I mean, just hypothetically. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the white thing that she mentioned really is another thing. What... If you're... I'm so um, offended by intersectionality, the whole thing, because I think it's, it is bigotry. And uh, the, the idea that it's become totally okay to use white and white male as an epithet cannot be helpful to society. And certainly, we even see it among comedians. You might say, like, even some white liberal comedians, like, fuck this shit, you know, they just told me, you know, they're not looking for any white men. And, and if you complain, oh, you white people need to step off. And Sarah Jung can tweet at will about white this and white that. And at some point, they are, uh, they're complaining that there shouldn't, nobody should feel white nationalism, but then they address white people as if, yeah, you, you guys are, are white people, and this is absorbed. And then I, I think somehow that doesn't help. And then they've broken the, the beautiful guardrails that we were raised with, that it was wrong to judge people by the color of their skin. And I think I said it before. So after 50 years of the civil rights movement, We've learned that it wasn't that it was wrong to judge people by their race. It's just that we were judging the wrong race by their race. And to me, once you've broken that, those guardrails, then it becomes very easy to say, and Jews are blah, blah, blah. Because if you could talk about white people, why can't you talk about, tell me again, oh, I'm allowed, to, I can tweet anything I want about white people and the, and the New York Times will hire me, but I can't talk about Jews? Well, what's the difference? And, and I think it's very, it's very, very toxic. And I don't, I'm not making any excuses for these murderers but I think that is fueling some of like the a fire rebellion. no yeah. some of Trump voters the mm -hmm. ones who would never ever lay a hand on anybody but they're like fuck this you know Michael Moore used to care about us 
And now we're now who's going to vote for the party that views them as deplorables? It's a it's a spectrum of ideology. Yes. And and I think if we're all going to take um, step back from it, I mean, so yeah, I mean that um, there are people who have those reactions. Obviously, the vast majority, um, and those reactions are to a greater or lesser extent reasonable. And all but like nine of the people who have that reaction would never hurt anybody. Um, but uh, that, from a law enforcement point of view, I think we need to pay attention. We have got a rising, and it's a global problem, of um, white jihadis. Jabron, I has to go and do a so, new, so, new, new uh, joke night. Let's let's. Jabron, can I ask you one no, quick question? Yeah, 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 you're sure. going to do a new joke night. <laughs> uh, has this has this Christchurch massacre affected your act at all? It's only been a couple days. I'm still processing the event as a whole. Uh, has it affected my act at all? Not yet. Well, because I'll tell you, I, over the weekend, I have a joke and may no, not no, be the best. No. Oh, what do you okay. go do? I have a joke where I say, it's an old joke and it works well enough. It's not the greatest joke in the world, but I say that uh, we say LOL here in the United States if something is funny on online and my friend Hassan in, in, in Jordan... Uh, send me a joke and I sent him a joke and he said oh F-O-C-F and I said what does that mean and he said fall off camel funny now now, regardless of what you might think of the joke that's not the point I know it's a shitty joke it's actually kind of funny but the point is is I didn't do it over the weekend precisely because I just didn't want to be seen as See, picking on the spectrum like as, we thought as yeah. picking on Muslim yeah. people yeah. and I, so it did affect me in that regard I very briefly did a show Friday night where I tried to explore the silver lining uh, but it, it it didn't go well. I'm not gonna say the joke, but uh, the silver lining of any extreme act. But so, but did you address Christchurch or just extreme acts? In- I addressed. New, I said New Zealand, yeah. but it, it was too fresh for me to. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and I understand. It's, it's very visceral so. to people now. For sure. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. So, 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 so let me just, let's, let's use this to jump off into the... But anyway, so you have to go do your new I, joke. I we do new run, joke yeah. nights here uh, <laughs> every Thursday and Monday, I believe it is. Uh, yes, Monday and Thursday. Monday yes. and Thursday we do Thank new joke nights. Let us Appreciate know how that New Zealand joke yeah, Well, goes. I'm, I'm going to put it to the side. <laughs> I, I, I want to talk about... It the, wasn't, I wasn't shit. Can I... Can yeah, I, go, ahead, go ahead. I wasn't shitting on anyone, but it was, it's just a tough Just topic. mentioning it. Yes. Just to mention just the word... mentioning it Ze- wasn't good. If somebody in the audience tonight, I said, where are you from? And they said New Zealand, oh, the room would get silent. Oh, for sure. Exactly. Just the words New Zealand yeah. would silence that room. I want to talk. And they, I don't even know how I would respond. If somebody said I'm from New Zealand, I don't even know how, what I would say in response. Hola. <laughs> I would. I would probably just say, "Couldn't you have lied?" But anyway, which would probably get a big laugh. But in any case, Gibran, <laughs> have fun at New York. Thank Joker. you for having me, everyone. Good, good luck. Dave doesn't know what. I mean, uh, David doesn't know what to make of this because, like, we're first we were like talking very seriously, and now we're like being a little, little I, bit. I, I want to talk to you about anti the anti semitism yeah. thing. Because this is... This has been Noam's latest obsession now. Well, you know, I have, I have three, three young children, and, and, uh, I had, and I'm, I'm hyper-concerned about left-wing anti-Semitism, and I, and I really am not concerned at all about right-wing anti-Semitism, which I feel will always be there. And my reason is the following. I'd sent an email to somebody. That right-wing anti-Semitism rallies us, and left-wing anti-Semitism rots us. 
Meaning that when somebody, when they shoot up a, a, a synagogue in Pittsburgh, and by the way, there was a shooting under Obama as well, but you know, in Kansas, uh, but the guy wasn't as competent as a, as a mass murderer as the guy. But it could have just been yeah. the same story. Uh, we all say, we're Jews, you know, it's like, uh, and, and it makes us feel to stand up for ourselves. But when they turn us into Afrikaners is what they're doing, where you're, you shouldn't go take a semester abroad in Israel and, well, and, and you can't march in the women's march and you can't march in the, in the gay march and, 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 and BDS and Occupy Wall Street and Ilhan Omar. We can't even muster the votes for... I, I see the future for my children as being you know, afraid to hold their heads up high. Let me give you one other theory. I don't mean to talk too much. So the, the Democrats, uh, according to the... The, the Pew poll are 27% sympathetic to Israel. You've probably seen these numbers. Republicans are 79% sympathetic to Israel. And I thought to myself, how odd is it? Normally, if you're in a political party, you would wish that the other party would take on your views. What would it mean if the Republicans took on the views about Israel that the Democrats have? Then both parties are 27% pro-Israel. And it goes maybe into a free fall and is a kind of a consensus against sympathy to Israel. And does that mean, and then I'm finished, that the Republican Party is the bulwark really against anti-Semitism that allows us Jews, programmed from birth to be Democrats, to indulge our social justice id, which is, you know, on these issues and stay within the Democratic Party, while really it's the Republicans that are protecting us from the critical mass, which I'm scared of. So that's a lot to talk about. I often marvel that it's an incredible accomplishment of the Trump administration to at one and the same time have given license to so many anti-Semitic voices and to have used anti-Semitism as a tool and at the same time also to be the most Shonda for the Goyim administration ever because it's, 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 it's full of... With enemies like him, we don't need friends. No, it's That's full what of Jewish said. people doing terrible things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and... and, and, and then it's full of anti-Semites like attacking... Um, I take the poll you cite, I've seen it, I take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. Because it... Even after what happened last week. Well, because it just doesn't line up with the behavior of the Democratic Party as a political... I mean, if it really were true that three-quarters of Democrats were Israel skeptical, um, it would be impossible for the Democratic Party to function the way it is. Well, it's so, where it is sympathy, to be fair. It's yeah. where it is sympathy, which is, which is so, so I, not now, easy as, to As down. someone who's used a lot of polls, I think you always have to be very careful to listen to the question and to say, did they ask what I think I heard? Or how did the person hearing the question um, hear the question? And oftentimes you'll discover that that someone who cares or is, is very active in an issue or very informed about it, under, ah, that question means X. And now you have to put yourself in the minds of somebody who, um, right? So somebody may say, as you were just saying, it, it may have been phrased in a way where, do you feel, who do you feel more sorry for? Yeah, it wasn't. It was, who do you feel sympathy for? Okay. They, could, they could have interpreted. But someone could said. interpret that and yes. say, well, I don't know. Israel seems like they're doing fine. The Palestinians say they're not doing fine. So, but then we wouldn't be seeing what's going on on college campuses. We wouldn't be seeing BDS. We wouldn't be, I mean, the, the list well, is I, long. I, I have and, to... and, the, and the Democrats would have felt compelled to right. pass that but I, think one, I think one of the things that is going on in America, there's a, a very, and this is a very, especially if you're in comedy or if you're in this area, or if you're educated, is understand I think one of the things that's going on is we are seeing, and it's symbolized with that scene in the restroom, the confrontation between Chelsea Clinton and those two provocateurs from Columbia, that there's this intensified ga gathering of this woke activist left uh, that is not where 
very many, I mean, I th- obviously it draws on something important in American society. Um, I, I, a good example of this is, okay, so you remember the story of Ralph Northam and the blackface, he was the governor of yeah, Virginia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that story breaks, and within 24 hours, at least, I don't know about your Twitter feed, my Twitter feed is unanimous, not only that um, he should go, but that he must go. He's doomed. There's no possible way he can survive. This is such a terrible offense. And he doesn't quit. And four or five days later, there's a poll where they discover that a, an outright majority of black Virginians do not want stay. him to quit. Yeah. And you think, so, so all those woke people on my Twitter feed, who are they talking for? Not the people you know, for whom they purported to speak. Um, and so I think one of the things that, ha- that you have this... Um, like just as the word the word woke, you know, think of amazing, you know, it, awakening. It's a religious experience. It's not really a political movement. It's about you know one's own re- relationship to the purity of one's soul. But it's also fleeting, right? Because they just move on from topic yeah, to topic. Up. They're outraged, and then right. it's over, and then they're outraged yeah. about the next thing, and uh, nobody. Uh, out, out, out. And, and black voters in Virginia seem to have decided don't love the photo. Don't love it? Don't love it? This guy signed Medicaid, which is why my uh, sister who lost her job has health care coverage. And so, you know what? I'm not the most important thing in the... And, and that kind of thing of real-world politics, which is about right. what do I need? What do I get? Uh, these, these, these... I was talking tonight to somebody, well-known journalist, and he'd just come back from interviewing Beto. He's an old, grizzled guy. He said, I think I'm in love. After all this time, you still fall in love with politicians? I said, don't you? I said, no. They're employees. You hire them. <laughs> but what you just touched on is something I actually parted company with you uh, a couple years ago, which is that, you know, if you're, if you're a voter, like to me, there's the elite. I, I had, forgive me now, because we're friends now, but I had felt that you'd become a little bit of an elitist in the, in the following way. That if you're a hypothetical election where where um, the, the the candidate who uh, is a creep, the Trump candidate, um, wants to put the homeless shelter in the neighborhood, and the angelic candidate doesn't want the homeless shelter in the neighborhood, yeah. yeah if you're not, if you don't live there, you're like, how could you vote for this? Yeah. Raise it. But the guy who actually lives in that neighborhood is like, I don't care what he said about women, and I don't even care. I can't live with a homeless shelter where my kids are, are walking to school. And I felt like, and I'll talk about myself, that at some point I began to realize that, you know what, no matter what, politics is very, very much entertainment for me in that I don't really feel implicated by the outcome of any election. It's got got left, right, they raise the taxes, lower taxes. I'm fine. I'm going to be fine. But there were all these Trump voters out there with this high level of economic anxiety and whatever it is that they were feeling, and, and probably wrongly, and maybe they've learned their lesson now, and they were ready to overlook that stuff because they didn't want the homeless shelter. And, and they got piled on. And I always felt it was wrong to talk about them as if they were soft on racism or soft on this. I don't think they, many, some of them might have been. I didn't think that. I thought they're just, I mean, 70,000 kids died of opioids. I mean, they're living with stuff they're grappling with. And they believe this election might actually matter. I don't expect anybody to follow my work closely, but just to get it off my chest. So I've been writing about those problems in what is happening to down market, old stock white America since 2005. Um, and uh, I was on this beat long, you know, I think actually, was The Apprentice even on the air in 2005? I don't think so. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, so 
back when D- Donald Trump was like a local New York joke. Um, before it ever, so th- this has been, a, and I, through 2014, before he was a candidate, I was writing about these things in conjunction. Um, read, uh, what is happening to the um, uh, non-metropolitan, non-college, two-thirds of the population, disproportionately white, I've been writing about that for a long time. And I, if I can't guarantee, I write a lot, that every word I've spoken is as respectful as, in retrospect, I would wish it had been. There may be a slip. But I will guarantee you that almost all of it is as respectful of those voters um, as I wish it had been. Um, and that's how the. I, I, and anyway, they're the citizens of our country. We don't condemn them. But what I, what I said, the difference between your analogy is, yeah, I have a lot of leeway. For, I mean, politics. They're, you, they're employees. Uh, you hire them to do something. You hire them, you know, to. to so that the homeless shelter goes in your neighbor's... That's where it belongs. <laughs> over, over in the next ward, not in your ward. And they do the same. That's right. And, and you, you know, you want a traffic light and they don't want... like that. But when you have a serious criminal uh, who aspires, and not just to be governor of a state, but president of the United States, that's an attack on the system. And I'll tell you something about the, the word elitist. Because it's, it's a word I will... If I can define it for myself, I will use it for myself. So, most people are not that interested in politics. And most people, uh, by inclination, by temperament, by time, it uh, takes energy, um, it's not their thing, uh, but those who are, are different from other people. They have more advantages. And I certainly, I, I'm very conscious that in my life, I've had way more advantages than most people have had. But if we understand that an elite doesn't mean affluent, an elite means actually, like the Marines are elitist. And it means originally it comes from the word to choose. People are picked out by fortune or fate to have, you know, a little bit more perspective, something like that. They have extra responsibilities. And one of the, their first responsibilities is to defend the system that has done so well for them. And the most important thing, and I think we've really learned this in the past decade, not just in the United States, is democratic systems are super vulnerable to corruption. Much more than we thought. Um, and... Uh, those people who have ha- who've got space and scope and some advantages, they have a special responsibility. And what has been angry at me, ma- one of the things that made me very angry is to see people from my background, people I know, who are signing, who think, I can make a lot of money either directly or indirectly from this Trump experience. And so I'm going to swallow qualms that I am in a position to know. And, and they're shirking their responsibilities, and I don't like shirkers. Right. I, I, I was never... I felt that Trump was more of a blowhard than a Hitler. I, I still feel that way. Um, oh, he's no. I'd be happy if we can pocket a couple of. Uh, I wish a Kavanaugh thing had gone differently in terms of you know picking a conservative justice. But if we could pocket a few conservative justices and then move away from this man, he, of uh, course he's not Hitler. I mean, it, you know, and because the United, to, to get Hitler, you don't just need Hitler. You need a prostrate country. Yes. Um, you need a situation of crisis. But what, what you, he can be is a, a Berlusconi or a Perron, uh, somebody who systematically tries to make the judicial system more corrupt. Um, you know, has he, you think, you know, and by the way, I supported Hillary, just for the record, on, on this show. Yeah. I always supported Hillary. Yeah. But I just was never, I, I didn't have the panic about Trump. I don't Trump. recall uh, 
vociferous support of Hillary. Not, I, how could it be vociferous? It was uh, a hold your nose you support. Know, you, you could take count votes in the Clinton household, and I think there were two vociferous. It was like two to one vociferous supporters. <laughs> well, it was it was a lesser of two evils support. Yeah. Listen, I'll tell you what bothers me more about Trump than what this stuff is that I think we're playing Russian roulette. Like if you imagine George H. W. Bush dealing with the invasion of Kuwait, yeah, uh, you had a president who was up to the job. If Trump had to oversee that that time in history, he he, he so if we. If we find ourselves in need of a president who's up to the job, we do not have a president who's no. up to the job. And Hillary would have been up to the job. So why aren't more people in power like doing roulette. more things to get him out? That's what uh, I can't yeah. wrap my brain around. You can't just get him out. He has to commit a crime. Yeah. Well, let's, first, people, there's this line people say, nothing matters. Nothing matters. So I can tell you, if George... W. Bush, for whom I worked, mm -hmm. if he'd had 4% unemployment and like fewer than 10 Americans dead in combat operations in a year, he would have been at 60% approval. Um, I think Barack Obama had kind of a racial barrier in his approval numbers, but with the same facts, he'd have had, you know, 55, 56% approval. So this guy, there's already like a 16 or 17 point discount for being a loudmouth jerk. Um, and so it matters that, that Donald, the facts that Donald Trump has had in his first two years as president should have made him a really popular president. And and he's he's already so things matter. Um, his loudmouthery, his his I would say his criminality, those things matter. Um, getting him out The Canadian uh, just showed itself. Uh, getting him out <laughs> getting him out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> getting him out of the house. It's like Jordan uh, Peterson. Uh, but Jordan Jordan's even far more oh, extreme. I do not it? like Jordan Peterson for the record. I'm talking about his accent. His accent no I um, I had a chance to talk to him recently and yet Whoa, whoa! You've got the uh, uh, you've got the Canadian accent, but the uh, doing it in any way other than by election is super hazardous. Is he going to win again? Election? Not that he won the first time, frankly. Uh, you have to work on the, begin with this. Most American presidents get reelected. I know. So um, no one should assume that he's done for, but he's got a lot of problems. And then it's and then also. The whole ma mindset of prediction asks you to look at politics like a spectator. And and so when you say, so the question I said is not, is he going to win? But what am I going to do? Can I tell you why he's not going to win? Why is he not going to win? He won by 70,000 votes in a few swing. I mean, what, he lost the popular vote by millions right? in, a few, in a few swing states. 70,000, meaning that if 35,000 had voted the other way, 35,001, he would have lost. I cannot believe that over this four years, and they didn't even campaign in those states. They're not going to make that mistake again. I can't believe after this four years, people, they did not pick up those 35,000 votes. It's well, I, I think that things have changed in the, in the years that Trump's been elected. Number one, he ha I, I was scared that the country would just, that he would, I don't know, launch a nuclear missile. He hasn't done that. So I think <laughs> too late. It's not over uh, yet. Number two, I think things have changed. I think things like the Covington Catholic School kid, the Smollett. He didn't win any votes from that. He didn't I, win any new I, voters in the last four years. I don't think. Not, not well, in those swing states. I think he lost. I think a lot of them felt he was going to help and them. And also and the economy is, is reasonable in 2020. Does a president ever lose when the economy is doing uh, well? No, but I do think a lot of people, a lot of disenfranchised, poor white people especially, thought that Trump really yeah. was going to help them, and he's made it abundantly yeah. clear that he doesn't give a give shit about argument. any of them. Well, we they, are, by the way, on, on. an they, hour and a half into this. If they just hadn't said that Hillary was such a shoo-in, he might not have gotten those. They would, people would have gotten out and vote. Okay, here's, here's the 
optimistic case from his point of view. Um, the elect, and this is an elect, this is leaving the morality out of it. Um, it's just electoral. Here's what he's got going for him. Uh, the economy remains strong. So it looks like it's going to be a little weaker in 2019 than it was in 2017, but it's still strong and wages are rising. And the wages are especially rising in the bottom two-thirds of the population. And that has not been true for a long time. Second, I think the point about Covington is really true. I think a lot of Trump voters will are not voting for him. Uh, they're voting against cultural noises that they regard as threatening. The things you were saying. I mean, that you're, I mean, you're expressing them in your voice, not your voting behavior, because you've got a voice, you've got a microphone. But there are people who don't have a microphone, so the, the, the vote is their microphone. And so they're, that this, um, they're not voting for, they're going to be voting against. Um, and uh, I think it's a, a, the Democrats, in my opinion, lost in 2016 for two reasons. Um, one, uh, one was that uh, black turnout, dropped off very dramatically from the levels of 2012 and 2008. And the second was, at the last moment, college-educated white women um, held, their, held their noses and said, I'm voting Republican one more time. Horrible. And, and they got to stop bashing just, white people. There's nothing to be gained and, by bashing white people. And those, two, but the, the white, the, those women who voted, were not, it was, they were not reacting to the coming. They were just saying, uh, you know, I'm voting for, you know... Um, got a business I've got you know it's a stain what? it's a stain okay. but but the question can the Democrats still alienate those two groups can they and I think they can't it is possible the Democrat if they were to nominate Bernie Sanders for example I think you would see uh, Bernie Sanders would be would have a very depressive effect on black turnout um, and uh, and I, I don't think I mean the woke, woke world loves him so much I don't think they see how much he is he is also a candidate of white ethnic expression um, People also hate him on the left, though. I feel like they don't hate him. Right? Yes, they but do. I know. They hate so everybody. They hate Chelsea Clinton now. I mean, they're they're out of their minds. They're like a, they're like an overactive immune system that's turned in on itself. They they can never go. I wonder what the, I know. It's time to go, but um, this is my theory about Mueller. I've said this for a long time already. There cannot be any collusion. There's not even any suspense. And there, this is the following reason. You tell me, as a person who actually has got been to the White House and all that stuff. If I'm Mueller and I have evidence that the president is compromised, I have to come forward immediately. I can't sit back and let him pull out of Syria, take a flamethrower to NATO and say, well, I know why he's doing it. He's doing his Putin. But I'm, you know, I'll, I'll tell you when I'm good and ready. He has to act immediately. Okay, you're touching a real neuralgic point with me because I wrote in the spring of 2017, I was really worried about this whole special counsel approach because the point of a special counsel is to identify prosecutable crimes and prosecute them. And if you find something bad that's not a prosecutable crime, your job is to keep your mouth shut. I mean, if you're in, in, um, uh, investigating somebody for a crime and you discover that he's a bad father, um, you know, or that he's lied about his charitable contributions, you know, not, that's not your business. Right. Uh, that's not a, and Mueller is such a by-the-book person that he will internalize that. Right. I have a mission. My mission is to see if they're prosecutable crimes. If I find them, prosecute them. If I don't, don't. Um, and so oh, the problem is a lot of the things that you're worried about in collusion are not prosecutable crimes. Not pro and, he would and, have to leak it. He's a patriot. I mean, you can't, you can't know that he's going to do irreparable damage is, to the security of the United is, States because he is, he is a patriot, but he is a by-the-book lawyer, and he would not leak it. And He, he has would to. He would deliver it in his report to the attorney general, and the attorney general would decide what to do. And 
Um, and I think what, 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 that what is going to be very upsetting to the country, and this to your question will get him out. The thing, and I've, I've this is not a, I've been writing on this since the spring of 2017. I think the truth of what happened was Trump took terrible risks with national security. He's compromised in all kinds of way, ways. His son-in-law is compromised in all kinds of ways. But m these things that they may not have turned out to have committed prosecutable crimes, in which case Mueller's going to say, hmm, nothing for me to do, and then we're going to have a, nas a convulsive national debate. Yeah, I, I don't, it's the only thing I don't agree with you, and I, I think that if he sees Trump saying stuff about NATO and he knows and has reason to know that Trump is doing that because he's under orders, essentially, uh, he, he can't sit on that. I mean, I, I would hope he, he wouldn't sit on it. I don't see how he could live with himself. We'll know soon. We'll know soon enough. And, and that, okay. Well, and, and uh, there was one other thing about the, the Mueller thing I wanted to ask you. Oh, and, and so nothing about, you have a second? Nothing yeah. that bothers me. So we were told for a long, long time that Trump, now, you know better than I do, treason is identified as a capital crime in the Constitution. Now, Trump has never actually been accused of treason because you have to be at war or something. I don't know what the technical thing well, is. Well, co treason is defined in the Constitution as, as uh, levying war on the United States or giving aid and comfort to its enemies. Now, I don't think there's been a successful treason prosecution in almost 100. I mean, th there were some charges in World War II, and they were overturned. Uh, but so, but in the absence of a state of war, it's almost impossible to have a treason prosecution. All right. So, but the things that people like Rachel Maddow and the rest were, were, were and I was subject to, thought were, were ready to accuse Trump of, were in that close cousin category to the ultimate crime of treason, which is identified as a capital crime. So much so that people had to write articles explaining why it was this, but it yeah. wasn't actually treason. And the second that it looked like we weren't going to find treason, they turned their attention to paying off a mistress who might have been extorting him. And as if it's like, well, it turns out you didn't rape and murder my daughter, but you were speeding without any kind of shame that, you know, we were looking for something really, really important. Yeah. But really, we just wanted to get you on something. So we're, we're totally fine to take the jaywalking ticket. Well, um, that bothers me. Uh, this is one of the problems with cable TV. Yeah. Um, like YouTube, they have to keep you watching. And they won't... You, uh, um, you won't keep that, that, so they need to give you this measure of excitement, uh, and and that me and they need to sort of string it along and promise. Um, you know, tr treason is a is a heavy word and one to be used with care. Uh, but Donald Trump, as we know, has d did things that if he had any job other than the president would make him ineligible for a security clearance. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I would say there are things that show a security risk. Um, his son-in-law was refused a security clearance by every competent authority and got one anyway. There's security risk, and he's the word I would use is compromise. He, there, and we don't know to what degree. Um, but we, I, I'm with you. We have to be careful about how we speak. Um, but my core is I don't think Trump is motivated. Most traders are motivated by ideology. He's motivated by money. Um, but he got into stuff with An the Russians. An ego. An ego. Yes, absolutely. And he got into stuff with the Russians where he got over his head. And exactly what happened, we will soon know. Um, but it's not what a president of the United States should have done, in my opinion. Yeah. Agreed. The worst crime to me that we know about is Trump University. That was just that's just despicable. When you, I mean, unbelievable. That, that anyway. Okay, we, we are way Thank over time. All. Thank you all. Um, I hope you, you feel you didn't waste your evening speaking with oh, a bunch of pleasure. dunderheads. No, it's a pleasure. What a glamorous uh, locale. It's uh, a, 
and, and, the and back I, table. I feel like the, you, you should name a sandwich have you after heard me or something. Of the, have you heard of the Comedy Cellar? I have heard. Maybe my son is a huge, hugely interested in stand-up comedy. So, uh, yeah, so he was very well, excited. As a guest of the show, well, you have a lifetime pass to the Comedy Cellar. All right. Well, my so, for you or your son, it's right. transferable. He lives, in, he lives in L.A., but yeah, we were at, we were at uh, he goes to the Comedy Store all the time. So the, uh, I, I saw that on your Instagram. Is, is, I thought you were getting well-prepared to come visit us. Is, is, is he has showbiz aspirations? How old is he? He's uh, 25, and he, he does, but he, what he, he's, I, I'm, very, I'm very relieved to say he's looked it out. He wants to be a producer, so he's got a, he and his writing partner, they make movies. But the writing partner does the directing, and that is the guy when they say, okay, we need uh, to have 42 bicycles piled up in the driveway, um, and it has to cost $11, and then we have to have them all gone before the city gives us a ticket. That's his job in the partnership, that he gets the bicycles, puts them in the driveway, gets them removed, pays the $11. So he's the business guy in there. All right. Well, uh, um, yes, I think that was a that was great. Good show. Uh, Thank you. We'll good see you night. next time. Good night, this everybody. Is, we, we are truly a trans, a trans, a transgender, a trans genre <laughs> podcast. <laughs>